going to read a passage from Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Uh, as Tim said, that's the passage that's not printed in the Bible. Uh, I guess that you'll get the same passages that were meant to be preached this week printed in next week's uh, bulletin. But uh, Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. And as he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those uh, carrying it stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. Just recently, a a rather beautiful book uh, called Conversations with God was released. It's an anthology of of prayers of African Americans over the past 250 or so years, uh, edited by James Washington. And one of those prayers is the prayer of a father responding to a poem that his son had written on death. And the father responds like this, Oh God, when I first read the poem on death, I asked myself, Isn't this a strange subject for a young man to write about? Why is my son writing about death? But then I looked at this world and his life, and I understood why. Death, oh God, is all around. Well, death is all around. And it has always been all around for anyone who has their eyes open wide enough to see it. Uh, But most of the time, we prefer not to open our eyes and see it. Because as soon as you look at death in anyone's eyes, you end up eventually looking at death in your own life. And frankly, that scares us. That terrifies us. It confronts us with ultimate issues. It confronts us with either, perhaps, meaningless, meaninglessness at the end of it all, or perhaps with meeting God, and if you're not on friendly terms with God, that can be just as terrifying as the notion of meaninglessness in life. Ernst Becker had a theory that went like this. He said, all human beings who are called normal live in a constant state of denial. If they really perceived reality at any one moment, they would go running stark mad into the streets for they would not be able to handle it. And the reality is this, we don't know who we are, or why we are here, or when we are going to die, or what happens after we die. Death is all around. But in contrast to Becker, death does not necessarily have to have the last word. Indeed, Christianity tells us that Jesus is the one who has the last word on death. And this passage in which Jesus raises the widow's son from death teaches us that he has come to do just that, rescue us, rescue us from death. In this passage, we learn not only how ugly and pervasive death is, how devastating it can be, but we also learn the purpose and the power of Jesus to overcome death. And as we look at both those things, we find that we're given hope and purpose in our own lives that are often pervaded by death as well. So let's take a look at this passage in which Jesus tells us about, and which we learn about, how Jesus overcomes death and what it has to do with our own lives. 
As we said, death is really pervasive. It's present in so much of life. Such is the case in our own day, and such was the case in Jesus' day when he uh, engaged in his earthly ministry. And it's important that we not limit our notion of death merely to the act of dying, as significant as that act itself is. You see, wherever life is not as it was intended to be by God, death is present. That is, death pervades our lives. Wherever life is in some way diminished, wherever it is dulled, wherever life is impoverished, death is present there. And so where there is poverty, because God never intended there to be poverty, there is death. And where there is sickness, there is death. And where there's infertility, there's death. And where there's loneliness, there's death. Death is all around. And where there's sin in our own lives, either as individuals or in the structures of society, there's death. We'd like to believe that our lives are filled with life, but they're often so filled with greed and avarice and self-centeredness that there's very little chance for us to be enjoying life the way it was meant to be enjoyed. Our own lives are pervaded by death. And of course, in physical death itself, there is most surely death. Death, as the preacher says, is all around, and it casts a shadow over the entirety of every one of our lives. And Jesus, aware of that, enters into this city, the city of Nain, and he's coming to preach the good news of the kingdom. And as he goes in to preach this good news, he's greeted at the gate by the bad news of death yet again. A widow is coming out, and with her, her son, who has just recently died. And her life is pervaded by death. Whatever her life had been in the past, and however full it had been, it's only growing darker and darker by the moment. Presumably, she at one time had a husband, but he's gone. And she had had at least one son who gave her a sense of hope for the future. But now he is gone as well. And the widow's plight was not an enviable one at all. The widow was one who was divested of her male protector. And in that society, that was a crucial issue. Her plight, the problems that she faced, were loneliness. They were abandonment. They were helplessness. She was a person, as the Bible defines a widow, who was without a living relative. She had no contacts. She had no power. She had no wealth. As a matter of fact, the widow is often in the Old Testament linked with the poor in the same breath just because her socioeconomic status changes radically. Death pervades her life. She's been twice deserted. She had a son, and a widow who had a son eventually had the opportunity of seeing her fortunes reversed. But with his death, her hope completely dies. She's twice deserted. And Jesus sees that, and we're told that even as sorrow envelops his, her life, that he's moved to compassion. You see, death hits everyone, and I suppose, therefore, death does not hit the poor more frequently than it hits the rich. It doesn't hit the haves more than it hits the have-nots. But it does often hit the poor earlier and with far more devastating consequences than it does the rich. We don't know why this widow's son died. We don't know if he was sick. We don't know perhaps if, as, if she had had enough financial resources that she might have gotten him medical care that he wouldn't have to die. All we know is that he died. 
And Jesus comes on this scene, and we're told here that he's filled with compassion. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. And already there are intimations of something good about to happen, because we're told that he is the Lord, the one who's in control. And he comes into a devastating situation, but he has more than enough power to handle it. And he gives advice, frankly, that itself has intimations of some hope for the future. Don't cry. Now, I wouldn't advise you to give that advice to people who you know who are mourning. But Jesus has power to do something about death. He invariably intends to do something about this situation. And so those are appropriate words from his mouth. But we need to make sure we don't jump too quick into the hopefulness of this setting. We need to allow the reality of death and its pervasiveness in our lives to rest with us for just a moment. Because if we don't face that reality, then one day it will catch you by surprise. You might think everything is going along just fine, but problems will come, difficulties will come. Our life is pervaded by death. And in one way or another, it will make its way into your own being, into your own reality, and eventually it will, you will face it face to face. So we need to be aware that it's there, even to get to the place that we're not caught by surprise, but also we need to be aware of death's reality if we're ever to look for a solution. Death is all over. But the second thing this passage does teach us is that Jesus does have a purpose. And he does have the power to overthrow death in all its manifestations. And here it becomes very important to see actually the whole, whole scope of this gospel. This passage comes in the context and we need to see both what comes prior to it and what comes after it. And in Luke chapter 4, Jesus gives his inaugural address. That is, he gives his kinder, gentler nation speech. He says, what's coming? He says, here's what I plan to do. Here's what I've come on the scene to accomplish. And he says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He reads from the prophet Isaiah, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that text becomes the programmatic text of Jesus' life and ministry. The, le the rest of Luke's gospel is written in order to demonstrate to us that Jesus fulfills his campaign promises. He doesn't speak them and then withdraw them, but he says, what I have claimed that I'm going to do, I actually will do. And Luke sets that out for us. Just after this passage that we've read, in which Jesus raises the widow's son, there comes a time when John the Baptist is in jail. And John didn't expect to be there. He's about to be beheaded, and he's wondering why things have worked out the way they've worked out. Suddenly he begins to have some second thoughts about Jesus. He doubts whether perhaps he's the one who he thought he was. And so he sends some of his disciples on ahead to Jesus, and he says, he tells them to ask Jesus, are you the one we were expecting or should we look for someone else? And Jesus says, go back to John and tell him this. Tell him and report to him what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, 
the lame walk, and those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the man. I am the one that you were expecting. Jesus is fulfilling his campaign promises, and he's about to do that in this passage that we're looking at now. When he raises the widow's son, he's saying, I've come to set captives free. I've come to release those in oppression. That's the purpose in my coming, to do away with death in all its pervasiveness. And here, of course, is an important point. And that is, whenever you look at Jesus' miracles, and when you look at this particular miracle, you need to look at the whole context of what's going on, the whole content of what's going on. It's not merely that a dead person is raised here, but you need to ask, who is the dead person who's being raised? Luke doesn't record the details of this passage just because they're satisfied idle curiosity. He has something that he's trying to get across. It's of extreme importance to this passage that it happens to be a widow and her son who are being dealt with. That is, those who are numbered amongst the poor. Because Luke, throughout his gospel, pays special attention to Jesus' ministry to the disenfranchised, to the marginalized, to women in the society of that day who certainly were numbered among those people. And that's why so many people happen to be drawn to Luke's gospel. We see a certain side of Jesus that doesn't come across in quite the same way in the other gospels. His ministry is taken up with those who are particularly destitute, who are particularly needy. And it makes sense that his ministry would be just like that. See, I don't think we can really say that God loves the poor more than he loves the rich. Some people might want to say that, but that's not really true. What we can say, however, is that he has a special concern for the poor in a way that he doesn't have for the haves of this world. In the same way that, frankly, parents who have a handicapped child give special attention to that child. They don't love that child more than their other children, but they do give them special care. They do give them special attention. Remember, Jesus has come to turn back death. And wherever death is most concentrated, and it's just dripping in this scene, Jesus comes on the scene with concentrated effort to turn it back. And so Jesus, without without the least sense of superiority, without the least sense of condescension or self-satisfaction, goes up and touches the coffin, something which would have made him unclean, but he's so bursting with life himself that he can do that, and he calls the, the son to get up. And he comes back to life. God never intended death to be on the scene at all. When God created the world, it frolicked with life. It bursted with life. There wasn't a hint of death anywhere. Not a hint of sadness. Joy and complete. Joy and fullness was present. And Jesus has come to restore God's original intention to the creation. By raising this child from the dead, or maybe it was a grown man, we aren't sure, But it's a situation, as we say, which is shot through with death. And by raising this kid from the dead, Jesus manifests his power 
over death with great clarity. Now last week, we began talking about the miracles and we said that the miracles are not merely God showing off. We talked about, if you remember, bewitched Tabitha used to sit around and if she got bored at the dinner table, she'd just levitate an object just to have some fun. That's not what God's doing when he performs miracles. He's not showing off. And nor is he merely demonstrating compassion, though he's doing at least that. He's still doing something more than that. Because if that was the only purpose in his miracles, there's a lot of people who didn't get shown that same compassion. No, the miracles are trying to tell us about who Jesus is, about what God's like, and about what he's come to accomplish. And this miracle tells us, first and foremost, that Jesus has come to abolish death. He's come to bring life in fullness. You know, we've heard the uh, attack on crime speeches. We've heard the uh, attack on poverty speeches. Jesus gives his attack on death speech. Far more encompassing. He doesn't want anything that stands in the way of life to remain. And we're told in the miracles, therefore, about Jesus that he's the Christ that he's the Son of God, the one who has come to bring life. He's come to bring a whole new order of things. And the phrase that Luke uses to get that across is the kingdom of God. You read that often if you read through the Gospels, but I'm not sure we explain it as often as we ought. As a matter of fact, when we're told that Jesus preaches, it's not merely that he preaches the good news. If you read Luke's Gospel, we're Whenever he preaches the good news, it has a qualification on the end of that. It's the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. And it's exactly what Jesus is referring to in Luke chapter 4 when he says he's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is, a new age. And he's saying, there's a scope of salvation that I'm bringing that is much larger than just what goes on in your interpersonal life. The scope of the salvation that I'm bringing encompasses both sin and cities, or both souls and cities. Sickness and sin. It covers both structures and sad situations. It deals with both persons and poverty. It's cosmic in scope. It encompasses everything. The King, Jesus, comes to heal, comes to mend, comes to make whole everything that is broken, everything that is fractured, everything that is wrong about this world. And by demonstrating his power over death, the ultimate foe, he makes it clear that all lesser foes will fall as well. But how is he able to defeat death? How is he able to do it? What gives him the right to raise someone from the dead? You see, death is the just dessert for our sin. Death is the consequence of sin just in the same way that breaking and fracturing your legs is the consequence of jumping off a cliff. As soon as you do one, the other happens. Put it another way. Think, if you will, of a magnet. And if you attach a piece of metal to a magnet, eventually that piece of metal becomes magnetized as well, and you can attach a piece of metal to it so that the the metal itself now is holding on to another third piece suspended from it. But remove that piece of metal from the magnet, not only is it removed from its source, 
but eventually it loses its own magnetism and the other piece falls away as well. And Scripture tells us that when we cut ourselves off from God by our sin, we removed ourselves from the source of life. That is, we brought death upon our own heads on purpose. And what came of that was not only spiritual death, but eventually following on the heels, physical death as well. Death is the wages that are paid to sin's employees. Death is the wages that are paid to sin's employees. Someone has to pay up. And yet that's just what Jesus has come to do. His whole march through the cities of Jerusalem is eventually, or through the cities of Israel and outside the region of Israel, is eventually leading him to Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says that Jesus set out resolutely for Jerusalem. Why? Because that was the purpose for which he had come. He was going to die there. He came to pay the wages, death in our place. He absorbs the cost. He takes the consequences of sin. He suffers death instead of us, that we might be set back in relationship to God, that we might be restored. And so his coming death and his resurrection serve as the basis upon which he can proclaim the good news of the kingdom. They serve as the basis upon which he can raise this widow's son from the grave. And the question that we're left, having looked at the pervasiveness of death and the power of Jesus to overcome it is, well, what are the implications of these truths for our own lives? Let me spell out a couple of them. That is, how is this miracle and how are miracles in general meant to function in our lives? The first thing they do is produce hope. They produce hope. They convince us that things will not always be the way that they are. A day is coming when the kingdom will arrive in fullness. The span of our lives, in reality, is short. They will come to an end, our lives will. And if we put our trust in Christ, our problems, too, will come to an end, either when we die or when Christ returns. Now, Christianity does not, of course, an end to our problems in this life. People who come to Christianity expecting the problems of this life to be removed have a rude awakening, a rude awakening coming on the horizon. What it does promise is not the removal of our problems, but hope in the midst of our problems. And hope, if it's just hope and hope, isn't of much worth, but if it's hope in something that's true, if it's hope in a coming reality, then it makes a huge difference. Cornell West, in his book Race Matters, says that the primary problem of the inner cities right now is not racism. He says the inner cities have been dealing with racism and have often survived it quite well for years and years. He says finally what's happened is nihilism has taken over, that there is a meaninglessness in the inner cities, that there's a hopelessness that's come to the inner cities, and people have given up. They've stopped doing right. They've stopped caring about doing right in large measure. Hope has been removed. And the inner cities desperately need hope. But we ourselves in our own lives need hope as well. And the miracles of Christ give that to us. They say, things aren't always going to be this way. 
Your problems won't always remain. You may not be able to explain them. You may not be able to exactly say why what's taking place is taking place. But what you can know is they won't last forever. And therefore, you can hold the line. You can continue to walk in obedience. The second thing that the miracles are meant to produce in us is trust. And Tim spent a lot of time talking about that this, that this morning. They tell us that God is even now in control. God's not away from the scene. He's not stopped working in the midst of our lives. He's still at work. The fact that the miracles took place at all demonstrate that God's involved in the midst of our lives. And therefore, when things don't go necessarily the way we want them to go, we still can believe that even if we don't understand things, God's in control and that he does have purposes. Trust is developed. But the final thing, and what I want to focus on most in terms of what the miracles teach us and what the kind of response they're supposed to bring out in us, is that the miracles show us God's character and therefore they demonstrate something of the quality of life that we're going to have in our own lives. That is, we're told by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 that we're to be imitators of God. And the miracles tell us what God's character is like. God's concerned, this passage tells us, about lives that are shot through with death. And we're to care about lives that are shot through with death as well. And the more the lives are shot through with death, the more attention he gives, and we're to follow suit. That is, we are to care for those who are surrounded by death, who are engulfed by it. And that's why the Bible does put a lot of emphasis on our caring for the poor, on our caring for those who are hurting. It's because their lives drip with death. And it's important to realize that when we get the right perspective on Scripture, what you come to understand is that we need the poor as much as the poor need us. There's a lot of times a lot of self-congratulations among the part of people who are doing good things among the lives of those who are hurting. And I don't want to suggest for any minute that our resources aren't needed in places where poverty rules the day. But the scripture would have us believe that we need the poor as much as the poor need us. How? Well, first of all, the poor, in many cases, have character traits that we can learn from. That is, there's a dependence upon God in the lives of many poor which we don't often come close to approaching in our own lives. That's not to say that every poor person has a great dependence on God. I don't want to idealize poverty or the poor. But it is to say that the situation that the poor find themselves in does produce a dependence on God that is not often mirrored in our own lives. And we can learn something from that situation. A second thing a second reason why we need the poor is because in caring for those who, whose lives are shot through with death, we ourselves are humanized. We're given life. That is, our own tendency to self-absorption is counteracted. Where death is encompassing us because we are so focused on ourselves, because we are pampering ourselves, by thrusting ourselves out into the needs of others, that aspect of our lives is countered, and we're transformed in it. And we need the poor for that reason as well. They give us the opportunity, opportunity to give testimony to the fact that we believe that God is faithful, that the kingdom is coming. You see, the same message that Jesus preached 
The good news of the kingdom is the message that we're called to give testimony to as well. That is, in our own lives, as we seek to bring the good news, it's meant to be manifested not only the words that come from not only in the words that come from our lips, but in the actions of our lives as well. We're to invest ourselves wherever there is death, giving testimony to the fact that we believe in a God whose purpose it is to give life, and who promises that one day life in its fullness, life in its glory will be restored. We're to preach in word and in deed, the good news of the kingdom. And wherever we see the poor, we're given the opportunity to do that. Revelation chapter 21 tells us that when Christ comes again, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That day is coming. There'll be no more poverty. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more loneliness. There'll be no more sin. There'll be no more separation from God in any of our lives. No more alienation. And in our own lives, we're to proclaim that same message. To those of you who are going out in the village church, I uh, encourage you to, to bring the gospel of the kingdom in its fullness to the village. And those of us who remain part of Redeemer, we need to continue to do that as well, to bring the gospel of the kingdom, to invest ourselves in the lives of the needy. Not out of guilt, but because, again, we believe in the God who gives life and whom to know is life itself, who's revealed himself to us and whose love is better than life. And when you come to know him, you can't help but desire to invest yourself in the lives of others. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that the salvation that you bring is full and complete. We ask that uh, we might know it more fully in our own lives and that we might demonstrate it as we speak and bring it to others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.